All right, folks, we're here. Everything's all right. Technical difficulties. No problem. Uh, what are we going to do when all this stuff is gone? That's a good question for everyone. Maybe that's how we'll start the program today. What are you going to do? What are we going to do when there's no longer high-speed, easily accessible for some internet? And I say that because there's many communities who actually can't access the internet. So there's this idea that everyone is connected, everybody's talking with people in China and making business deals with people in South Korea. I was, <laughs> was talking about this with a friend who, you know, we joke about how much technology hasn't changed society. There was you know, this great assumption in the 1990s that the internet was going to change the world. And it hasn't really changed anything. It's changed the way that people shop and it's changed the way that people communicate with each other sometimes. Other than that, the internet has not changed the economy. It's not the fundamentals of the economy, how the economy is structured, who controls the economy, who makes decisions, who doesn't. has not changed the state apparatus or how it functions really at all, Donald Trump being in office and the GOP controlling all branches of the government is a good sign that the internet hasn't borne the fruit that many liberals and progressive high-tech little wizards thought it was going to, sitting at home, <laughs> tinkering on the computer, oh, we're going to change the world with this program. Yeah, no, you're not. You're going to change a goddamn thing. Not a goddamn thing has changed since the internet's been here. It's the same with electricity. If you look back, it's funny because every time one of these new pieces or forms of technology comes out, people think it's a big deal that we haven't been here before, that people haven't thought or articulated the thoughts that people are articulating and thinking today. Total nonsense. I mean, there's not too much that is original today in today's world. There's not too much that you can say or do that hasn't already been said or done. Um, society's reaction to the internet being but one example. Um, if you look at the way that society, and this is, you could look in, say, newspapers, you could look in books, famous pieces of literature, and so on. But there was this idea, the dawn of the age of electricity, that electricity was going to, quote, unquote, change the world. And I guess in some ways it did, right? I mean, it, if you have electricity, it allows you to live in areas that you otherwise couldn't live. It allows you to produce things that you otherwise couldn't produce. But does that mean... Human subjugation, slavery, poverty, hierarchical institutions. Have, were any of those things changed by electricity? Of course not. My friend Derek is probably going nuts right now because this all ties into discussions that people like Lewis Mumford have had on things like techniques and how a society creates 
different forms of technology. It's not technologies that dictate the values of a society. In fact, it's the opposite. It's the values of a society that will dictate what sort of technologies are produced by that society. And so when I think of our society today, when I think of people sitting around day in and day out, looking at their computer screens, scrolling through their phones, hoping to see a notification or hoping to catch something that interests them. It, it is a sad and lonely and alienated lifestyle that I want nothing to do with. Uh, I find nothing, absolutely nothing interesting about social media, the internet, or anything that's going on in the digital world. Um, is that Does that mean... Uh, that those technologies and services don't provide things that I enjoy. Like, do I enjoy getting on YouTube and listening to album after album for free? I do. Most of the artists I'm listening to are either dead or rich anyway, so it doesn't really matter. But, the you know, the independent artist stuff really isn't on there, and you have to search for it. And Okay, so on and so forth. I'm justifying my terrible... Uh, existence of listening to and engaging with art for free but you know i'm not guilty so this is why it's hard to get paid to write anything so i'm sowing the seeds of my own destruction i guess in some ways <laughs> participating in this terrible system that doesn't want to pay artists or writers or musicians anything uh, to produce their material it's expected that we'll just continue to consume this stuff for free um so, yeah, anyway, I, the issue is this, I think we're reaching a moment where it's going to be sort of peak social media, peak internet, peak uh, digital consumption. The ravenous pace at which humanity is consuming digital material is unprecedented and, according to many studies, quite unhealthy. So I think we should just limit our time using it. It's not an either-or thing. It's not either you're going to use it or you're not going to use it. I use social media. Today, for instance, I posted something about the radio program. Now, when the radio program's over, I'll encourage people to attend the Michigan City Social Justice Group meeting, uh, which is this evening. I believe at 6 p.m. here at Park, where I'm sitting right now. It's Politic, Arts, Roots, and Culture. That's at 1713 Franklin Street in the Midtown District of Michigan City, Indiana. So I'll promote that later. I did an interview. Uh, well, I was interviewed by our friend Derek Jensen for this for his program, um, Resistance Radio, which also airs here on the Progressive Radio Network, I believe on Sundays. I'm not quite sure what time, but check it out, Resistance Radio with Derek Jensen, one of the best environmental thinkers and writers of our time and potentially one of the most important, I think. I, I would argue that. I think there's a good case to be made. Hell, anyone who writes over 25 books on a particular subject or particular subjects quite prolific, especially in our time now. So anyway, back to technology. What are people going to do when... Let's, say, let's propose a hypothetical. And call me crazy, but I just think this is going to happen in my lifetime. 
So let's say a good portion of the electrical grid goes down. Or let's say there's some kind of snafu with satellite technology and the connectivity to, uh, say, towers here on, on, on the planet Earth. Or let's just say there's an uproar in society and there's a revolt or a civil war or a mechanized war or an exploding of a nuclear weapon. Let's say any of those things happen. And let's say that for several weeks, we'll just start with weeks, but let's say several, imagine several weeks to several months, people in the United States are unable to use their internet technology resources. So social media, their phones, their email, and so forth. Would there on some there's many different levels, layers of what what would happen, I guess, or many different layers that we could examine what would happen. First, of course, would be, you know, what would happen to the economy? That would be everyone's number one concern. There things could get very interesting. But on a human level, on a subjective level, hell, not even on a well, we could say on a subjective level and on a collective level, how would people respond to that? Collectively, how would neighborhoods, cities, regions, uh, nations respond to limited access to, say, internet technology and its re- and the resources it, it provides? Subjectively, how would people respond? If you couldn't just get on your iPhone when you're bored at a traffic light or when you're sitting in a waiting room or when you're standing in line somewhere. If you couldn't just jump on your iPad or your iPhone and tap that Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook application icon and immediately start flipping your thumb up so you can start scrolling through the many, many posts of nonsense. Total nonsense. I wish I had a dollar for every post I see of some happy, giggly, smiley couple on Facebook only to find out a few weeks or a few months later that they're getting divorced. If I had a dollar for every time that happened, I might be a millionaire by now. (laughs) The levels of superficiality people are willing to go. um, Oh, God. It's, uh, It's quite sad, really. Um, And this is what this sort of digital culture has created. We already lived in an extremely alienated, isolated, nihilistic, apathetic, um, beat down society of people. We're extremely confused, extremely depressed, and extremely unhealthy, both physically unhealthy and mentally unhealthy. That's clear. All I have to do is scroll through my newsfeed one day. And I see the most bat shit crazy things you could possibly imagine. In fact, next week's show, or maybe I'll just do it right now, but what we should do for an entire program is just scroll through my new Facebook newsfeed and see the kind of crazy shit that people post. Totally out there. And this kind of gets to what I'm talking, what I wanted to talk about today. It's it kind of... It, it, part of so what I said I wanted to talk about today was the sort of conspiratorial left. Now this actually, the reason I'm bringing this up and the reason I wanted to talk to this was because a gentleman 
I know. I won't name his name because he didn't tell me to name his name. Um, sent me a message the other day. He said, I, he said, I tried to ask a couple Greens to comment on this, as it is from a standing member and former presidential candidate for the Green Party. How is this shit being passed off without rebuttal? So I click on the link, and what is the link? It is a link to Cynthia McKinney's Facebook page. Cynthia McKinney is a former presidential candidate for the Green Party. This is the kind of shit that the and then and then and then the left or whatever these people call themselves will wonder why people just say, you know what, I'm going to follow the Democratic Party because these people can't be serious. And why should you take people like this serious? So Cynthia McKinney writes, hey, folks, wake up, free your mind and the rest will follow. Ten banks control all 12 Federal Reserve Bank branches. N.M. Rothschild of London. Rothschild Bank of Berlin, Warburg Bank of Hamburg, Warburg Bank of Amsterdam, Lehman Brothers of New York, Lazard Brothers of Paris, or the Lazard Brothers of Paris, Kuhn Lua Bank of New York, Israel Moses, CF Bank of Italy, Goldman Sachs of New York, and J.P. Morgan Chase Bank of New York, William Rock- Rockefeller, Paul Warburg, Jacob Schiff, and James Stillman own large shares of the Fed as individuals, then it shares a link to what is one of the most batshit crazy websites out there called globalresearch.ca. This article, written in 2012 by Dean Henderson, The Four Horsemen of the Banking, own the four horsemen of of oil in tandem with the Deutsche Bank, BNP, Barclays, and other European old money behemoths. But their monopoly over the global economy does not end at the edge of the oil patch. So the problem with this, it's not that I, you know, there's probably many other things for people to do other than talk about these things. Some would argue that this isn't even a very interesting thing to talk about. The reason this is a problem is because when people like Cynthia McKinney get passed off as being left wing, then people think this is what left wing looks like. So then people think, oh, well, this is the left wing must be made up of a bunch of fucking jagoffs. And so, oh, so therefore, why would I pay attention to left wing when I can just go and either not pay attention to shit, which makes more sense rationally than paying attention to someone like Cynthia McKinney, or, or people end up gravitating to people like Alex Jones because when you see something that Alex Jones posts and when you see something like Cynthia McKinney posts, there's virtually indistinguishable. Alex Jones is smarter than Cynthia McKinney. He's more witty. He has more interesting information. The production value of his shows are better. So when you look at him and then you look at Cynthia McKinney, you go, if you don't know any better, you go, oh, well, what in the fuck am I listening to her for? This guy's got it together. He's got a clear narrative. He knows he, – he, he looks like he knows what he's talking about. And um, yeah, he's a great following. So – 
I don't. There's so much I want to say about this. It's hard to. It's hard to put it into words, I guess, because this this is a huge barrier to organizing. Like this is a huge barrier. We have to reject this, and this is what I was writing earlier about the description of the show. But we have to reject this cynicism and apathy and nihilism produced by this. If you come to the conclusion that there's a few banks and a few families that run the world and that there's nothing you can do about it, then where where does that leave people? Or what does the resistance to that look like? Because a lot of this stuff is also – it's fallen into this sort of anti-Semitic shit wherever – you know, I hear these people – it doesn't matter. I have people like this on my social media pages. They're fucking lunatics. I can post anything. I can post something about – a lack of uh, funding for public education. I could post something about what's happening in Syria. I could post something about what happened, what's happening with the economy. And it never fails. These people will come on and they will post a picture or a meme or something that has to do with the state of Israel. But this gets back to people's inability to think because we're not encouraging people to think critically. We're giving people easy answers. This is the problem with identity politics. This is the problem with Marxism. This is the problem with, uh, what is this, neoliberalism. This is the problem with the conspiracy theorists. This is the problem with all of that. Of course class politics are real. Are class politics primarily the primary antagonism all the time, always, everywhere in the world? No. Is it one of the, is it one of the main antagonisms in society? Sure, it is a fundamental antagonism. But I know people who make well over $250,000 who I'd much rather have a conversation with than the pe- some of the people I know who are poor, poor and extremely ignorant and extremely bigoted, extremely sexist, extremely racist, extremely homophobic. And with shit class politics. So it's not like we're talking about people who just because they're poor automatically have a good class politics. That's not true. People can't make that assumption. I see this with activists all the time. We just need to bring more poor people into the room. And if we just have more poor people of color, then we're going to have different perspectives. Yes, it is true that you will have different perspectives than that of, say, a middle class or wealthy white person. This is true. The data is pretty clear on that. But that doesn't mean that in every scenario that that perspective is going to be interesting or valuable. Okay, so let's use a real world example. We had a planning meeting. The city and the city developers and the planners here in Michigan City are trying to come up with a 20-year master plan for the city. How are we going to design the city and prepare it for the future? Now, there weren't too many poor people or people of color in the meeting, but those who were there didn't offer anything particularly interesting to the conversation. So what was interesting actually was one of the gentlemen who, I mean, you can only make so many assumptions based on how someone's dressed and all the rest, but based on how he was dressed, based on his overall demeanor, I would assume probably making decent money, uh, especially if you're wearing around a, you know, $500 watch. Uh, but, uh, in any case, you know, he was the only – or actually he was the first person because I had mentioned it as well to mention gentrification in the entire meeting. We're sitting there for two hours. It's the only person in our group that was split up who mentioned gentrification other than myself. And he was a white guy and he was an older guy and he had money. 
the poor people of color who were in the meeting were talking about very real things, things that they need, street lights, potholes fixed, sidewalks in their neighborhood, new stop signs. But that sort of limited scope of what politics is and what, what should be demanded when you go to these kind of meetings is an indication of a lack of education. And I'm not talking about official education. I'm talking about political education. So again, you can't just assume if you're an organizer or a progressive political activist that if we just pull in some poor people of color that automatically they're going to add something substantive to the political debate. Their interests are going to be different. Their perspectives are going to be different. But it doesn't automatically make them better, number one, although most of the time I guess they are. You look at like the voting patterns or the opinion polls of poor people of color in the United States and compare that to, um, so I'll say poor whites, which then we're not talking so much about class differences. We're talking about racial and ethnic differences and this legacy of white supremacy where poor white people can see themselves as class enemies of poor black people and not because of their class or not even in spite of it, but because of just simply their race and the idea that they should have the power and that the old saying among poor whites is, I might be poor, but at least I'm not black. So talking about white supremacy in this context is of course important. But we've, we haven't forced people and we haven't done a great job, I think, on the left of educating. Not only educating ourselves and educating each other, but educating the public about how politics works. What is progressive left-wing politics? Where does it come from? What is our history and our tradition? Let's talk about that history and tradition. It's a proud tradition in many cases. We've had dark moments in our history, like any political movement has had dark moments in their history. And we shouldn't, sh- we shouldn't shy away from those conversations either. You know, there's uh, something happening out in front of the building. <laughs> I apologize, but there's about two police cars two fire engines and a fire marshal truck that just pulled up across the street. I hope everything's okay with the folks at the Keys to Hope Community Center. So anyway, getting back to this, and that's actually a great segue, in a very weird way. So it's having conversations, not with people from Keys to Hope, but with others who have done extensive work with homeless populations and drug addicts those addicted to drugs and alcohol, which is a drug, but anyway. It's not as the, it's not as if those people automatically have good politics. So you can't just walk into a place like that and assume, oh, these people are poor and many of them are people of color, so they're automatically going to buy into this progressive political platform that I'm going to approach them with. No, that's not the case. And for those of you who already know that's not the case, the flip side to that is you can't go into a place with poor people of color and then automatically just take what they say and go, well, geez, that's that's what they said in that community. So, I mean, that's what that that's what we're going to fight for. You know, so if you walk into a community, a poor community of color, let's say, and there's um, 
people there who are demanding, uh, say that there be more police put on the street. Oh, that's well. There's a great example. There's a perfect example, actually. Real world example. We don't have to use hypotheticals. All of this. Any issue you bring up, I can bring it up in the real world, and that's important for us to do. So let's stop talking about things as though they're theoretical or hypothetical. This is all happening, and it's all happening now. So let's talk about police. So back in 2014, Chewy Garcia was running against Mayor Rahm Emanuel for the mayor of uh, the mayoral race in Chicago. One second. I had to wet my gullet. Okay. So one of Chewy's – let's back up. The city of Chicago and is in a state of chaos, and it has been for some time. Under Rahm Emanuel's leadership, I believe the city closed over 50 public schools, privatized all kinds of goods and services and jobs, went after the Chicago Teachers Union, and the list goes on. So all kinds of neoliberal politics and neoliberal reforms that have had a disproportionately negative impact on people of color, but particularly black communities. Chewy Garcia comes along. Chewy, one of Chewy Garcia's platforms or policies in this platform was to add an extra 2,000 police officers, Chicago police officers, to the streets. Now, there's a million different ways we should examine this, but think about the message that sends in 2014. Remember, in August of 2014, Mike Brown was killed, shot and killed by Daryl Wilson in Ferguson, Missouri. And creating an uproar of primarily black but also progressive activists who since then have really spoken out and kept an eye on and criticized. And, and by doing so, probably have prevented numerous deaths uh, at the hands of the police. Because now the police know that there is a movement of people who are going to be watching them and videotaping them and criticizing them and taking them to court. And that stuff is really important. It seems trivial. And people point and they say, well, what are the victories? You know, there's just as many people shot by the police last year as there were the year before. The only thing you can say is maybe there would have been more if there wouldn't have been people out there being vigilant. Holding their feet to the fire, elected officials, police officers, and so on. It's very important work. So think about the message that Chewy Garcia sends now, this is in a city that already is experiencing and has experienced for many years racial and ethnic divisions and segregation. Institutionalized, no doubt, but many of it, much of it also subjective. Much of it also personalized. The kinds of things I've heard my Mexican friends and Hispanic friends say about black people has been very disheartening. The kinds of things I've heard black people say about my Hispanic or Latino friends is also quite disheartening. The things I've heard my white friends say about my black and brown friends is quite disheartening. The things I've heard Native Americans say about black people is quite disheartening. So these divisions are real. There is, there is no just general sense of solidarity that like, hey, we're just people of color and so therefore we're just in solidarity with one another. That doesn't exist. That definitely doesn't exist in the U.S. context. 
and it sure as fuck doesn't exist in places like Northwest Indiana or Chicago. But the thing is, is that Chewy Garcia was offering 2,000 police officers, an extra 2,000 police officers to the streets. And guess what? If you look at the polling data in places like Chicago, there was a significant number. In fact, over 50% of the black people polled, and there were divisions, gender divisions, there were class divisions, there were... um, Generational differences. So, for instance, young black people, particularly young black women, and even more specifically, young black poor women, wanted less police than, say, affluent black older women. Not surprising. Regardless, though, 50% of the people who are polled, over 50%, almost every poll, actually wanted more police on the street. Now, does that automatically mean that their position is legitimate? No, not at all. Should we, should we understand that position? And should progressives better seek to understand that position? Of course. I mean, I don't think it's rocket science. You live in a neighborhood. The neighborhood is extremely violent. You don't trust the police, but you don't trust the drug dealers and the gangbangers even more than you don't trust the police. Because at the very least, the police are not driving down the street shooting at random people. So when given the choice between the two, people say, well, I would rather the police. I'd rather rather the police protect me. Or I'm hoping that if we can just put more police on the street, then I can send my child to school without having to worry about whether or not that child is going to be shot and killed. Those are legitimate concerns. Those are legitimate positions. However, that does not mean that I have to respect them. It's sort of the same as the 9-11 attacks. Do I understand why people would want to fly planes into the World Trade Center and the Pentagon and the White House? Of course I understand it. Does it mean I respect it? Of course not. It's the same with regressive policies. Just because people of color or poor people or whoever are asking for regressive policies – doesn't mean I have to respect it. On the other hand, it does mean I should try and understand why they're asking for those policies. In the end, of course, at least in the case of Chewy Garcia, it didn't matter. He got tromped by Emmanuel by 10 points. I mean, I don't, people, I, I, since then, people say, oh, it was a close race. It was, it was a 10 point victory. 10 points, for Christ's sake. Is another good example of the left trying to find hope where there is no hope. I wouldn't be surprised if Rahm Emanuel gets reelected. Why? Because the left is completely fractured, which gets to our point. There's no left in Chicago that's this unified entity. Look at the People's Summit, filled with white people. If there were black and brown activists there, they're part of the professional class. Those sort of activists that are getting paid to do the work that they're doing. They work for NGOs. They make good money. They hang out with primarily white people who are college educated. They hang out in professional circles of journalists and writers and activists who've made it to that professional class. And they want to keep that position. Who wouldn't? 
You want to go back to flipping burgers? You want to go back to working your mundane bullshit nine to five job? Or would you rather kind of kiss a little ass, sacrifice a little bit of your politics and get paid to do something you like doing? That's, that's the wager that most of these folks make. So it's the way it's, it's, it's how you can have thousands of progressives descend on the city of Chicago and at the same time, the city of Chicago have absolutely no plan, no strategy for victory to beat what should be the most beatable mayoral candidate in the country, Mayor Rahm 1% Emanuel. You look at those, look at the, look at the racial divisions in the voting. I should pull up some articles that I've written for uh, Znet and Telesur during that time, but it, very disheartening. I mean, the divisions were very clear. I mean, in 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 wards that had a black plurality, Chewy Garcia did not win one ward that had a black plurality. Rahm Emanuel won every single ward that had a black plurality. So what is the disconnect on the left? What is the disconnect for those of us who are seriously interested in organizing effective movements and breaking through these divisions? How strong does the disconnect have to be and the segregation? How deep is the segregation for – Black communities to vote for a piece of shit neoliberal candidate who sold them down the river at every step of the way. Oh, who's to blame? The black professional class? Black preachers? Preaching this bullshit prosperity gospel nonsense? Those are the people to blame in the black community. That's a real barrier to organizing. If you're interested in organizing in black communities, you're going to have to navigate a certain level of Uncle Tom bullshit from the black professional class. That's what you're dealing with. I don't have any respect for those people. I don't give a fuck what situation they went through in their life. I don't give a shit. Just because you were able to make it out does not give you the right to be another regressive prosperity gospel Horatio Alger pushing bullshit official whoever. Give a fuck that you own a business. I don't give a fuck that you're a professional. I don't care. Those politics are shit and they'll be called out as shit as they should. And people shouldn't be afraid. My God, please, if you're out there and you're listening, and you're saying to yourself, well, I don't feel confident saying that to, to someone who's black. Well, you better get the fuck over that. That's part of the problem we have on the left is people who just can't speak the truth or open their mouths because they're too worried about what these identitarians are going to say. The identitarians are dying. Their politics are going away. But we have to fill them. We have to fill that gap, that vacuum that neoliberalism has left us because there's plenty of people out there going, well, shit, on some level we have made great progress. In terms of su- subjective forms of racism, you can't just run around saying crazy shit to people. You can't just you can't you can't just uh, be an overt racist in the way that one could say in the 1960s or 70s. No. And if you ask any black person in the United States, you 
be hard pressed to find someone who would tell you, you know, I'd rather live 60 or 70 years ago than I'd rather live today. I don't think so. I don't think so. So progress has been made. I would argue primarily on the social front. So yes, subjective forms of racism, subjective forms of sexism, subjective forms of homophobia, even institutionalized forms of racism, sexism, and homophobia, many ways have been improved. Some of them, however, have gotten worse. If you look at household wealth of, say, black families, it's gone down than what it was 40 or 50 years ago. If you look at institutional forms, institutionalized forms of racism, some are better. Let's say housing policies are better than what they were 50 years ago. But then again, the criminal justice system is as bad and nefarious and criminal as it's ever been. So it's very nuanced. Some things are better. And overall, I would argue that it is better for women, for people in the LGBTQ community, for people of color, particularly black people in the United States. So people are left in this position where they're sitting here going, all right, we've made great steps with regard to some of these social issues. But when it comes to class and when it comes to power, who has the power and who doesn't, who makes decisions, how do they make them and why, and in whose interest, and the class politics, who has the money and who doesn't, and how do we redistribute that wealth? If, if part of your political platform doesn't include a, redistrib a, a vast redistribution of wealth, then... I don't know what to say. Don't expect anyone too excited about it. Don't expect me or anyone else who's willing to put our nose to the grindstone for serious movements or organizations or politicians. Don't expect us to do much for it. We ain't going to do it. I'm not going to do it. Speak for myself. It's a waste of our time. And so in this, this vacuum that has been left by identity politics, this vacuum that has been left in in the uh, aftermath of the collapse of the Soviet Union. And it, we, we were, the left is, is at, a, at a great need, in great need of new ideas. I, I am utterly unimpressed and uninspired by anyone who starts quoting Trotsky or Lenin or anyone. I mean, if I hear any of those names, I just, my brain just shuts off. It just shuts off. I thought all that shit was interesting when I was like 22 as a freshman in college and, you know, learning about things, reading books. It is interesting stuff, but don't start quoting me, people. Or, or you know, when people are asking, hey, what should we do today? You know, how do we address these issues that we face? Well, you know, Trotsky once said, shut the fuck up, man. And this is why the left can't win. It's why we don't win. It's why we're not winning. We need new ideas independent thinkers, we need people who are serious, we need people who can see through the dogma and the sectarianism, we need people who are principled, we need people who can develop their politics, we need people who can sit there and stand there and say, this is why I'm left-wing, this is why I'm progressive, this is why I stand on these issues where I stand, and this is what I want to do about them. We need people who are confident. In order to be confident, you have to put in the time and the work. So you're just going to wake up one day and go, oh, now I'm confident to deal with a world that is extremely hostile in many ways, especially those in power to the idea of progressive political reforms, let alone 
you know, what my some friends would call a revolution. The idea of revolution is so far away from where we're at right now that I simply don't use the language. But I'll use the language for many reasons. First of all, because the average person hears you say that and they think you're a jag off. And number two, because I don't, I have never met a revolutionary in the U.S. I might pe- meet, I might have met people who think, who thought they were revolutionaries. I might have met movements who thought that they wanted to participate or ignite a revolution, but I've never met people who are actually engaged in the process of creating revolution or anyone who I would trust with a weapon in their hand or, or, you know, I mean, right now, folks, most left-wing political organizations in the United States would be lucky if they could run a slate of candidates that can get elected. Right now, most left-wing political organizations in the United States are lucky if they can get enough donations this month to continue their work next month. So don't come talking to me about revolution and not expect me to have a very sharp response to that kind of bullshit language. We need people who are serious. We don't need the Cynthia McKinney's of the world telling people about the Illuminati, and we don't need these wannabe revolutionaries to run around, usually involved in sectarian groups telling people that they're revolutionaries. At the same time, they can't even organize a fucking community event with more than 30 or 40 people who show up, but they're telling me about how they're going to be a revolution. They're out of their goddamn minds. And we don't need those people around, to be quite honest with you. I don't want them around. Just because these people are on the left and just because they're willing to do work doesn't mean a fucking thing to me. Because they're doing more damage oftentimes by being around than they are by just not doing anything. Because just like Cynthia McKinney, the average person sees that shit or hears that nonsense and they go, you know what? Why do I want to be a part of this group? This group sounds like a bunch of nuts. I want to hang out with them. Who wants to hang out with a bunch of nuts? No one. No one with any sense. So it sets up a terrible example of what left-wing politics is. It's very disheartening. It actually really bums me out, as I mentioned to my friend who sent me that link about Cynthia McKinney. It's not surprising that somebody like Cynthia McKinney would say that. It's not surprising that the left would engender that, those kinds of thoughts among some of its members. What's surprising is that it goes sort of uncritiqued. But people look at the situation and they don't, they don't speak up and say, wait a minute, no, 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 Cynthia, you're nuts. You can't say that. You can't say that. You can't just start blaming Jewish bankers for the world's problems. You can't just fall into this Alex Jonization. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find a way to say that. The Alex Jonization. The Alex Jonization of society. You can't. You can't fall into that. It's not going to – you should be alienated. You should be ostracized for doing that because you're hurting movements of people who are actually out there fighting for real things like the environmental subcommittee here in Michigan City who's fighting to get kids tested for lead and then hopefully to get a grant from the federal government so they could start doing lead abatement in these houses or the people who are trying to stop – a horrific development project that will destroy the last untouched dune here 
in LaPorte County on the shores of Lake Michigan. Or the people who are trying to get a welcoming city ordinance passed here in Michigan City so immigrant communities will have an easier time navigating their day-to-day lives here where we live. Running around and telling people about banking conspiracies and the Federal Reserve does jack shit to accomplish any of those goals. And the problem with the internet now is that it has given a voice to every whack job nut out there who now thinks that they have something interesting to say about something, when in reality they fucking don't. They never have. But now, because of social media, because of the internet, because of YouTube, because of this hyper-superficial society that we've created, hyper-alienated society where people are sitting in the basements of their parents' house uh, in front of a computer camera trying to tell people what the fuck they think about what's happening in the world, now you have people like Alex Jones who years ago, I remember my friends years ago used to say, oh, Alex Jones is a fucking nut, man. How can you... You know, he's a, he's a nut job. Oh, oh, really? Yeah, I know he's a nut, but he's got, you know how much influence Alex Jones has? How many left-wing commentators do you see being interviewed on uh, Nightly News, NBC? How many left-wing commentators do you know have 80 million people, 80 million people download their program every day? I'm sorry, every week. 80 million downloads every week. People out there on the left can make fun of Alex Jones and these people all they want, but their influence is as wide as it is deep. And you can see how this influence has had a profoundly negative impact even on our left-wing friends who are now buying into this kind of shit. So instead of taking a very real-world look at how institutions function, the history of these institutions, in this way we have to give our Marxist friends at least some credit. They are interested in history, albeit a very selective sort of uh, interpretation of history. But that being said, at least they're interested in it. But these folks who have fallen into this conspiracy stuff, we, these, these folks have to be ostracized. They cannot be allowed to run around and hold events, and they can't be allowed to run around and have any level of credibility on the left at all. Uh, they must be purged <laughs> from any kind of serious movement because they're going to hold people back, people who are really trying to work on issues, trying to help people out, trying to help the environment trying to make these things happen and putting in the work, which all of this takes a lot of work. Like anything else, you got to get up and do it every single day. Well, I just feel like, um, you know, (laughs) putting ourselves in a terrible position if we allow people like Cynthia McKinney to be identified as a leftist. We just are. There's no good. It's not just about her. It's about the, I mean... Syria, look at this stuff. The, you know, chemical attacks by Assad. No, that's a conspiracy. Um, what else? I mean, we can go down the list. There's so many things. There's so many things. 
that I've heard about, you know, and even organizing is another great example. Yes, to some extent, the Clinton campaign did influence the election, the primary election I'm talking about now. But if you come to the conclusion that the DNC and the Clinton campaign controlled or hacked the election and that it was all them and that's the reason why we, why uh, Bernie didn't get elected or get nominated, it doesn't – well, you can't go anywhere with that. There's nowhere to go with that. Where do you go with that conclusion? What's the logical next step there? There is none. There's nothing you can do about it. If you come to the conclusion that, well, yes, the Clinton campaign and the DNC and the elites and the media are already predisposed ideologically and politically to support one another and to support Clinton, and that, yes, on some level there were some corrupt things that happened, but along each step of the way, if Bernie's supporters would have been properly educated and organized, they would have expected those things, number one. So there's no surprise there extreme naivety for people to think that Bernie was going to get a fair shot. And number two, the question is then, how do you out-organize that corruption? You just sit back and go, oh my God, woe is me, it's so terrible. Bernie was such a good guy, and those evil Clintons and the Democrats and the media, they stole it. Just Okay, where does that leave any kind of self-criticism, any kind of reflection here? You know, how can we look back and look at the situation and go, okay, how do we better organize next time? There's obviously issues within the Bernie campaign in terms of reaching out to people of color. Again, shouldn't have been a surprise, seeing as the person you were running for president was a, whatever, 72-year-old white dude from Vermont who has virtually no connection to any kind of black or brown or political movements or so forth. You know, those are the interesting conversations. It's the same as with Rahm Emanuel. You know, Chewy Garcia's supporters, they didn't want to have critical conversations after the 2014 mayoral election. Everything was Rahm Emanuel's fault. Everything was the 1% and the banks and all the people who gave the money. And yes, there's, there's a great level of truth to that. But where does that leave us? Where can we go from there? What is the logical then next step for us? It's nothing. It's to sit back and just continue to bitch and complain about the fact that we couldn't win or Chewy couldn't win because there's just too much money in the campaign. No self-criticism or serious introspection about, say, the vast divide between black and brown communities in the city of Chicago and the fact that there is no natural political connection between those communities. Or the fact that progressive white communities are actually much more connected to progressive brown communities than they are black communities. Those are the divisions. Those are the conversations we should be having. But if you come to the conclusion that there's nothing that could have been done, Rahm Emanuel had all the money and all the power and all the media and so on and so forth. And just, God, what else could we do? You know, we did the best we could. And this is just the way the system works. If you come to that conclusion, there's nowhere to go. There was nowhere to go from here. You leave yourself in this position of of being stuck, and then that leads to more nihilism and apathy and cynicism and so on. And I don't have time for any of that. 
I don't think you should either. Anyone who's listening to this should not waste their time with people who are cynical, nihilistic, or apathetic. It's not worth it. And those people aren't going to get shit done anyway. So we have to reject the conspiracy theorists, folks. Look, there's an article I wrote years ago called American Insanity, God, UFOs, Ghosts, ISIS, and Climate Change. It taught the the issue I, I go through and I look at Gallup's beliefs, Gallup poll beliefs and values survey. And it just shows how off the charts the United States is compared to other countries. So, for instance, more than four in ten Americans, 40 percent of Americans continue to believe that God created humans in their present form 10,000 years ago, a view that has changed very little over the past three decades. Half of Americans believe humans evolved, with the majority of these saying God guided the evolutionary process. In fact, these numbers are off the charts when compared to other Western nations. In other words, People in the United States, for many reasons, here I would reference Ronald Wright's book, What is America? Talking about this ongoing divide between the frontiersman class and the Enlightenment, urban and rural divides and so on. But I would argue that people in the United States are already predisposed to believe really crazy things and already do believe really crazy things about any number of issues. And that could, those can range from medicines, vaccines, to ghosts, to UFOs, to conspiracy theories, to God, to religion, to climate change. American beliefs are off the charts and disproportionately regressive and conspiratorial when compared to our Western counterparts. So is it any surprise then that the American left is infected with this kind of thinking? I don't think so. All right, folks. That's it for today's program. I'm your host, Vince Emanuele. You have been listening to Meditations and Molotovs, which airs every Monday at 1 p.m. on the Progressive Radio Network. Next week, tune in and you will hopefully hear one of the most wonderful guests that I've had over the years on the program. One of my favorites. You'll have to tune in and figure out who that is. But for now... Enjoy. I'm your host, Vince Emanuele. We will be back next Monday. In what we're doing now, we are getting to a feel of the world that is neither organic nor mechanical. Simply what it is. We don't know the contrast, just as we don't know the contrast voluntary involuntary. We don't know the contrast or 